Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today's show is going to have an interview show because it's Wednesday. And I have Dan Orman on, and we're going to be talking about raising sheep. Dan's a pretty cool guy. He actually left a successful career in law enforcement and relocated his family from Atlanta to the inland northwest to pursue their dream of homesteading. Dan practices a primal lifestyle and uses permaculture principles and techniques to develop his new 10-acre homestead from scratch. He's here to talk to us about all of that, his new YouTube channel, uh, his work with Justin Rhodes, uh, taking a PDC with uh, Jeff Lawton, all kinds of good stuff, and uh, especially his new YouTube channel, which is pretty cool. We'll have him on in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine? Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. Next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1896 because the episode's 1896. I have heavier than air flight is proven, impossible well, for now. Uh, food storage, a bird's eye view. And journey to the center of the earth in a balloon. That one's pretty fascinating, but I'm going to read the middle one, food storage, a bird's eye view, because uh, I'm trying to, to speak as little as possible today. I'm going to hope my, my guest likes to talk, uh, because I'm still just nursing this throat pain, man. It's uh, it's pretty tough. And uh, by the way, guys, I'll, I'll let you know before I read this, I'm going to be gone Thursday, Friday, uh, and probably Monday. So I'll be running rewinds for you. I'm going up to uh, a, a listener's uh, location undisclosed location in northern Missouri to uh, murder Bambi and Bambiette, hopefully. And uh, so we'll uh, we'll give you an update on that when I get back. And uh, so I'm going to do as little talking as possible while I'm gone and hope that uh, that my vocal cords kind of heal up a bit here. Anyway, um, the one I'm going to read for you again is food storage, a bird's eye view, because I think it's really interesting. Of course, this is bird's eye of the, the bird's eye food, food fame, right? Clarence Frank Bird's Eye II is born in Brooklyn, New York this year. That's his real name. As the story goes, an English page shot a bird on the wing with an arrow right through the eye. The queen witnessed this marvel and named the young man Bird's Eye, which became the family name. There is no evidence to support this bit of hokum whatsoever, but the family is sticking to it. At ten years old, Clarence will trap muskrats and sell them to an aristocrat in England to earn money to buy a shotgun. He will hunt and preserve his own food. While ice fishing, he will conceive of the idea of flash-freezing food but his contributions to society will be greater than inventing a machine that can flash-freeze 800 pounds of peas in an hour. Quite honestly, people didn't want to eat frozen foods because the food turned to mush, went to frosted, and tasted terrible. He invented an entire industry of frozen foods. He held hundreds of patents on things like modified harpoons, uh, an automatic fishing reel, uh, 
a frosted light bulb, and the infrared bulb he will use to, for dehydrating foods. My take by Alex Rugg. Clarence Birdseye was an exemplary 19th century man. He was willing to take on hardship and make his world better no matter what it took. If something had ever been done before, had never been done before, or if everyone said we've always done it this way, Clarence would find another way. It was his obsession. When Birdseye died, Sarah Robbins guided her little lobster boat out of Gloucester Harbor, where it meets the Atlantic. Clarence's wife, Eleanor, or, and his son, Henry Bird's, Bird Seed Birdseye, carried a ceramic urn containing the ashes of Clarence Birdseye. The idea was to cast his ashes out to sea, but the, the shock and surprise of all, Henry chucked his father's ashes, urns and all, uh, off the bow of the boat. The urn floated. Henry's sister distracted their mother while uh, he jabbed at the urn with a boat hook. He finally broke it, and the urn sank to the bottom. And thus, Clarence Birdseye was laid to rest in the sea. Um, I, kind of the reason I picked this one, he, he is the exemplary 19th century man. And there's a period from about 1880 till up to about the Civil, not the Civil War, I'm sorry, the, the, the Second World War, where... And you can see it if you read these other things, like the journey to the center of the earth and the guy trying to create the first flying machine, where men did amazing things. They had a spirit, and if it was dangerous, so what? That's what you do. You got to get it done. If uh, if you're taking a risk, so what? You, you you know, if you don't risk, you can't find a reward. If we're going to have these young generations coming up, the millennials and the Internet natives, if, if we're going to have them be the heroes that they need to be, and they're going to need to do it if they really care about the the world that they're living in, they they would do well to go back to this period of time and stop, you know, villainizing these types of people, the, the you know, the, 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 the wealthy business people of, of this time period, because they've been taught in their schools how evil they were and, you know, and, and what have you. And some of them were kind of pricks, honestly, but a lot of them just did amazing things. And they've been lumped in with the, you know, a couple of pricks here and there. And it was this attitude that, that brought humanity so far forward so fast. And we need another leap like that. But if we're going to have another leap like that, we're going to have to have people with courage, determination, and willingness to buck the status quo and to do what's right because it's right, not because you get patted on the back or you get a trophy for it. My thoughts by Jack Spirico. With that... I'd like to go ahead and introduce our special guest right now, Mr. Dan Oman. With Dan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. I'm so excited to be here. Man, I'm glad to have you on. We, I, we, I don't think we have ever had anybody come on and talk about sheep before, and probably because I had my my one bad sheep experience up at Ben Fox. The, the day I got there, we had one go down with fly strike, and that was my my only sheep experience. And I swore off sheep, and it's probably not fair to the sheep. Um, But, uh, right. yeah, because just the sheep covered in maggots is not a good first experience with sheep. But, not at all. <laughs> but anyway, uh, before we get into sheep and your homesteading stuff and all your cool things, um, can you, uh, can you give the audience just kind of your backstory? I, I know you were in law enforcement. Can we go back even a little further than that? Like, you're in high school, you're, you're, you're you know, you're throughout senior year trying to figure out what you want to do. How does that lead you to the world of sheep farming? Yeah, it's a really cool, long, interesting, I hope story. But uh, real quick on the sheep thing, um, that's actually what prompted me to reach out to you on this is I've been listening for, gosh, well over three years now, three and a half years, and I've never heard anybody come on about sheep. So I was like, man, you know, when I first started listening, I thought, 
man, I want to do something cool one day so I can be on this podcast. And then finally I got this opportunity like, hey, you know what? I have sheep now and no one ever talks about sheep on TSP. So here we go. But uh, anyway, yeah. Um, so I grew up in the suburbs of North Atlanta, late 80s, early 90s. And, um, you know, it was back then it was kind of ex-urban still, but I never had that real rural upbringing. I never had any homesteading experience. Um, you know, all of our food came from the grocery, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, my parents, they raised me very fiscally responsible. They preached staying out of debt. So that was really hammered into me from an early age. But they also, they programmed, they were very programmed about like college that that has to be the only way that to success. And, you know, my mom used to drive us by trailer parks when I was a kid and say, if you don't go to college, that's your future. And uh, so I always had that in my mind. I was like, oh, well, if I'm going to do anything in my life, I got to go to college. So um, but also, you know, we had that whole stay out of debt thing going. We didn't have much money growing up. So I had to get an academic scholarship. So I worked really hard in high school. I got a, a academic scholarship to go to university and I went to university with no idea what I wanted to do in life as I think a lot of people are facing these days. And so I just kind of went a couple of years trying to figure it out, go through general education, all that. And I realized I kind of liked history, kind of liked politics. And, you know, that's changed a lot since listening to TSP, of course, too. But, um, I got into the poli sci program there, political science and, um, after, you know, another year or so of that, I got really, really burnt out on college. I'm like, oh, man, I just can't stand going to these classes anymore. So I started looking for internships to do. And, you know, most internships in the political science program are law firms or um, working for, you know, like your local candidate, you know, helping them with their campaigns and that kind of stuff. And that just had zero appeal to me. And um, one of the classes I was taking at the time, it was an international terrorism class, and um, there was a a classmate of mine who was a commander uh, at a local police department in Atlanta. And we had been you know, quasi-friendly. We sat near each other, and I would just talked to him once in a while. And so I asked him one day, hey, do you guys have an internship program? Because, you know, law enforcement, you know, it's kind of loosely related to political science. You know, there's that local government level there. And we got to talking. He said, yeah, we have a great internship program. And he made a few phone calls and got me set up in it. So here I was, you know, this geeky, skinny college kid um, sitting in the police car with these, you know, all these ex-military guys and, um, you know, driving fast and talking about guns and all this cool stuff. And, man, I was just like, it was just so exciting uh, when I had to report back to the university, uh, you know, about once a month or so, we'd have to sit with the instructor and a few other of the intern uh, or the other students going through internships, and we'd have to share our experiences. And, you know, it, it was this roundtable event where one student would be, oh, yeah, I was uh, learning about tort reforms and the Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence and all this and that at their law firm, and then they'd get to me, and I'm like, yeah, so you know, we got in this foot chase and, the, you know, the um, busted drug dealers and, you know, all this crazy stuff. And everyone was just like wide eyed and wow. And so, you know, I was kind of a, always the hit at those events. But um, during that time, I thought, you know, this is just fun. This is just something to get college credit 
and not have to go to class. So that was kind of the plan. And, but I had such a blast and, and uh, I was like, man, you can actually get paid to do this and I'd get insurance. And so the police department, um, they recruited me actively and, um, I wound up saying, Hey, you know what? I got another year left of college, but you know, I could just take one class at a time, kind of finish it out and just work full time, actually have some income and just, you know, do that for a little while and then figure out what's next. So uh, I did that. I went through the police academy um, all day and then I would work. Um, I'm sorry. I went to the police academy when I got out of that. I, I still had to, I got on the night shift, overnight shift. And then I was going to college during the day. So it was kind of a rough transition, but I made it through. I eventually finished, got my degree, which um, <laughs> I've done absolutely nothing with, of course. But uh, anyway, I I'd had no debt. I mean, I I came out, it was all covered. Um, so that was great. But um, I, I worked really, really hard at my job in law enforcement. Um, I had a, a, I learned a, a tremendous amount, uh, just interpersonal relationship skills, um, confidence in myself. I, you know, again, I was just this skinny, skinny uh, suburban kid that didn't know anything about life, though I thought I did. And here I am now on the streets of North Atlanta. You know, I got an education for sure. I had gotten a few fights for my life. I had a uh, defend myself and that sort of thing. And man, it, it was just a, a real growth development for my, for me as a human in that experience for sure. I learned a lot about human nature. And, uh, anyway, after I, after about five years of working patrol the streets, um, I got promoted to detective, which was, you know, a huge honor, something I'd been working towards for a long time. I quickly realized that's what I wanted to do in law enforcement. And, um, I got into robbery and homicide. I worked some really major crime cases in that. I got to work with the FBI on some cases and armor car robbery ring where there are homicides involved with that and just some really cool stuff. And had, I had some, <laughs> um, some big cases that were in the media and all that. I got some, um, media interviews and stuff like that. So I had some feathers in my cap. I got a, a lot of attention from our, um, command staff and the chief of police and, um, it went a long way into, into, you know, a lot of accommodations. Career was going amazing. Everything was going great. I got specialized in crimes against children and crimes against elderly investigations. And I became one of a few, um, experts in, uh, elderly abuse investigations in the state of Georgia. And, um, I went around, I did teaching events, speaking events and stuff like that. So, all this was going really awesome for me. And then um, in 2010, um, my wife was about to give birth to our son. Uh, it was late 2010. And I had this spiritual prompting. I That's the best way I can put it. Like things just weren't right anymore. And, and I had this need to get resilient because, you know, my son was on the way and it was no longer just about me kind of thing, but I didn't know where to start. And I, so I just got on the internet and I just found all this, you know, I guess looking back now, perhaps bad information about preparedness, you know, about just get your pallet of MREs and your freeze dried food and gold and silver is going to be the only currency, get rid of your cash and all the hype. And it, none of it really fit right. It just didn't seem like it was the right answer. But I, it, it got a lot of scenarios going in my mind about, um, 
you know, if there's a prolonged incident uh, where systems of support are down, what will that look like? And my role in law enforcement, what does that mean for me? And I started having these, you know, scenarios play out of like, if we have a loss of um, power, you know, for if we see riots, that kind of stuff, will there be martial law? And since I'm in law enforcement, how will that involve me? And I had concerns like who's going to be caring for my family if I'm out having to deal with these things. And, you know, are we, you know, how do I feel about martial laws being on the enforcement end of it? So I had a, a mentor at work. Um, he's a senior detective and he's actually about to retire this month. I'm uh, really proud of him. But anyway, um, <laughs> he, he's, um, he turned me on to Oath Keepers pre Alex Jones days and, um, started showing me, okay, you know, this is, this is the practical approach to things. And I uh, started looking at gardening, uh, basic practical skills like bread making, canning soups and that kind of stuff, how to make butter. So when I started looking at how to make butter, I looked at, you know, okay, you need to have cream and then you basically agitate the cream to the point it gets butter. So like, okay, well, how do I get cream? Cream comes from milk. Milk comes from a cow. So I'm like, okay, well, I want to go to the source. So I found a local farm that was doing raw dairy and I went to the farm and visited and I just like, wow, I was just fell in love with this concept of farming. So I, I looked at learning more about conventional agriculture and, uh, because, you know, if we're, going to go through any kind of scenarios where systems of support are down. I, you know, didn't want to be relying on MREs and stuff. I was like, let's just look at how things were done a long time ago. Let's look at this in a sustainable way. And that's, you know, the answer to that is homesteading. I didn't really know that at the time, but um, I, I saw conventional agriculture. I'm like, that's not sustainable. So in about 2013, my mentor turned me on to this crazy redneck duck farmer from Texas <laughs> He found this program called TSP, and this was right after your move um, to where you live now, and right before Jeff Lawton launched his first PDC, and you started talking about permaculture, and Jeff was on the show, and I thought, this is it. This is the answer. This is everything I'm looking for. This is the reasonable, practical, no-nonsense approach that's going to be a sustainable way to deal with life in general, but also if the systems of support fail. And um, so I, I signed up for the PDC. I signed up for the MSB, and I got my discount on, on the um, PDC. And, uh, man, it just was nonstop from there. I listened to TSP every day. And I, I had this uh, this constant um, bombardment of your values of homesteading and entrepreneurship and and such in my mind, and it kept gnawing at me. And it got to the point where – So like, you know, it's I, all my fault. It is all your fault, Jack. <laughs> it's all your fault that we're now living this lifestyle that um, is way better than where we were. It's um, it, we're living the life that we've always wanted to live and didn't necessarily know it uh, because of you. But uh, anyway, so I I started feeling really constrained at the P, at the police department. I, I felt you know it, my time was becoming more and more valuable to me. As a father, as a husband, as someone who was trying to pursue these skills, learn about permaculture, when I got out of the PDC, I felt, you know, this um, – when I got out of the PDC, I, the PDC is really geared towards 
developing consultants. That was kind of the angle from it. I was more into, you know, how do I grow food in my, my own property? But um, when I came out of the PDC, I felt like, oh, well, maybe I do need to be a consultant. Maybe I, you know, I want to do this entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship stuff. Um, the, I was, I felt my time was more valuable, valuable to me at that point than I was being compensated for at the police department. Um, my work there was very important and it was fulfilling to a, a, a degree, but I was just ready for more. So, um, <laughs> this is kind of where we made a, a kind of an abrupt life change back when I first started looking into the preparedness stuff. I saw a lot of, a lot of stuff about, oh, you got to move to Idaho if you want to survive and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, Idaho, I didn't even know where it was. And, uh, so I looked on a map and I talked to my wife about it. Like, you know what? We've always kind of wanted to move West. Let's just go on a vacation and see if we like it. So we flew into Boise, um, the summer of 2011, just started driving all over the state. And we absolutely fell in love with Idaho, not for all the reasons that we originally thought we would come here for, but just because, the, the number one thing is the climate. I mean, when we came in the summer and we weren't sweating all day in the humidity, there's no humidity here. It was a huge thing, a huge shift from Atlanta. You, you're from, you know, Fort Worth. So, you, I mean, you know, humidity like no other, but, um, it, I couldn't stand it. Yeah. I spent most of my childhood there and I just had to get out of it. So when we got to Idaho, it was like, whew. Um, so we, just kept going back on vacations because we loved it so much. And then eventually um, one day my wife came home and said she got this huge promotion at work. If she accepted it, she could travel some and work remotely a few days a week as well because there's there's no jobs in Idaho, especially in her line of work. She's in the software industry. And so that was always kind of thing. Well, you know, maybe someday kind of thing. And so here we had this amazing opportunity to move. And it was like it, I was torn because – you know, our roots were there in Atlanta, but we just loved Idaho and here's our chance. So uh, I was at the point of the police department at 10 years in. And if I'd stayed any longer, it would have been like, you know, that dangling of the pension in front of you. If I got too close to it, I would just stay forever and never leave and wind up, you know, burned out and broken down like a lot of the other guys. And so I was like, you know what, let's just go. And uh, I got the highest honor of my career uh, in February of 2014 with the Chief Special Award, which is just shy of like, you know, saving someone's life kind of award. And then two weeks later, I turned in my resignation and we packed our bags and went. And um, I decided, you know, I'm going to try being a designer consultant. And um, we were we moved into town first and rented. And uh, so we didn't have a uh, property yet or anything like that. So I was trying to figure out a way to do permaculture while not really doing permaculture, permaculture yet. Um, and I failed at it miserably. I, I didn't even know what to do. I did meet with a lawyer and I, I did learn a lot about creating businesses as far as LLC versus S Corp, IRS two five five three forms and all this nonsense. And so it was a real educational experience, but, um, I did not, I just didn't have the skills I thought I did to be able to pull that off. So just personality wise, as well as desire and, and, and connections. I mean, we were brand new to the area, so that was kind of a drawback. So, um, so I started looking for other opportunities and I got, I tried the Luke Callahan microgreens thing after he was on your show and it started off okay. I started selling at a grocery store, a local organic grocery store. Um, but that was good until the weather got really, we had a really hot summer last summer and I started getting a lot of crop failure and it just, like I couldn't scale it up and I wasn't really into it that much anyway. I was just like trying to find something at that point. 
And um, I, I had this videography hobby that I started at the police when I was at the police department still. And so I tried that a little bit. I got into real estate doing some um, videography for realtors. And um, that just, you know, it, it, it was what it was. I, I was trying to build a portfolio kind of thing. And I did some volunteer work with food and farm organizations. And then had this great opportunity pop up. Uh, Justin Rhodes from Abundant Permaculture, you've had him on the show before. Um, I backed his Kickstarter for Permaculture Chickens, and he was looking for a video editor to help with promotional work on it, as well as some other projects he had going. So uh, I got in touch with him, and he hired me to do a bunch of jobs for him. So I started doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for him, getting his um, video shots up on his landing pages and stuff. And I learned uh, Justin is real like he he did it did an amazing job in going from nothing to really really learning and understanding marketing and um understanding how to use social media leveraging all these things and so i learned a lot from him watching how he was doing everything it was it was a really neat experience from behind the scenes um but anyway so fast forward we eventually found a uh, property it was 10 acres and had a little, small little house on it uh we were planning on building on it and just living in the small house for a while and um funny story uh, Gary Collins from the expert council uh he and I had the same builder and i'm sure you've heard a lot of stories about he the experience he had with his builder so building didn't go too well but anyway we're making a go of it in the small house and um, we started raising sheep and chickens and uh, we installed gardens with drip irrigation system and we're using like all organic sustainable practices, rotational grazing and all that. And, uh, we just had uh, our first successful harvest of our four sheep. And, uh, actually after we get done talking to them, I'm going to pick up the meat from the butcher. So cool. our first season here, uh, homesteading, it's been a real big success so, so far. Awesome, man. So, so why should someone consider sheep? I mean, you, you know, you start out with a cow and I can see big advantages, you know, uh, smaller animal, a little easier to control. And exactly. in spite of some of the things that happen with sheep, they, cows are really good at killing themselves. I mean, sheep are good at it, but cows will find a way to kill themselves. So, you know, what kind of led you to sheep? Well, you really, you really hit it right there as far as like ease to handle. But, um, I, I took during my, my last two years that we've been here when I've been like, you know, waiting to get on the homestead kind of thing, I spent a lot of time in books and research and going to workshops and, and, uh, meeting with local farmers and that kind of stuff. And, um, I went to a few sheep workshops and what I found was that, you know, one, they're, they're just, I don't know. There's just something about them. Like I just like being around them. But um, the, the the actual reasons were they, like you said, they were really easy to handle. They're smaller. They're less intimidating than cattle. You know, cows are huge, and pigs can get you know six, seven, eight, depending on the breed, seven hundred, eight hundred pounds. Hogs. You know, I mean, these are no, big animals. You, I mean, that's another exactly. Thing. You, if you yeah. fall in the trough, that's not good. Exactly. And yeah, you know, I had a small son. You know, he well, he's five now, but um, you know, he's he's still small enough to be eaten, I guess. And that's always a concern. So they're, they're, they're smaller, they're less dangerous, good for children, easy to handle and less intimidating for the new homesteader. Also they're ruminants. So and to me, like the, the number one way to revitalize a landscape is through um, putting ruminants on your property. Joel Salatin calls them the lacto fermentation tanks on legs. And the, what goes in, um, comes out even better on the other end with the, the lacto fermentation process that all the grass goes through. Plus, 
they're 100%, you can 100% grass feed them, which is the key to sustainability. You're not bringing in a ton of grain imports that that you can't grow on your property. If you have, in theoretic, theoretically, if you get your stocking density correct, and over time when you build a pasture, you can in theory 100% support the life of the sheep on your grass. So that's a real key to sustainability. Also, they're great for small scale properties, cattle. Like you said, are huge. They require a lot more space and a lot more forage. Um, it, it depends on your situation and, and how good your pastures are and everything and stocking density. But generally, it's been said that you know you can get about five sheep to one cattle. Um, so if you have a small property, if you have an acre, two acres, whatever it might be, um, you're you're not going to be able to sustainably raise cattle, but you can get a few sheep on there and put some meat up in the freezer for your family every year and do it sustainably. And then I'd also say uh, another reason to consider is you get multiple yields from them. You get meat, you get wool, you can get milk. Of course, it depends on your breed, but you're getting three yields. And... the yield of meat that you can get from it is a little bit more manageable than, say, if you had a steer, you're probably looking at 600 pounds or so of beef at the end of it. For a small family that may not have a lot of freezer space, that's a lot of meat to deal with. Um, if you're not into marketing and trying to sell it, then you know, you, you're going to have to find a place for all that. So a lamb generally, again, it depends on your breed and all that, but you can expect 60 70 pounds, anywhere in that range of meat per lamb, which is a much more manageable yield for a small family, especially if you don't have a lot of freezer space. Those are very compelling reasons. So a person decides, I'd like to do this. What do they need to do to get started with sheep? I mean, what are the the basic stuff you you have to have, the knowledge you need, that type of thing? Sure. Um, Obviously, the, the first thing is food. You need to have grass or pasture forage for them. Like me, if you're starting out your first year with them uh, and you're moving on to a neglected land, you might be starting off with a pasture full of noxious weeds and and have no um, actual grass to feed them. So I had to bring in a lot of hay. Um, but as far as the requirements go, your, your typical lamb is going to require either 25 pounds of grass forage per day per head or a roughly three to five pounds of hay. Um, the reason being is because hay is desiccated. So um, think of it like dehydrated beef jerky versus a slab of beef. You know, all that water moisture is out, so you lose a lot of that water weight. So, um, you know, so you can calculate, you know, I want X amount of sheep, so I need, you know, five pounds of hay per head per day and and kind of figure out how much hay you would need if you do have a, a pasture deficiency like I did. Um, so food, you also need to think about as far as food goes, a protein source. If you're trying to raise lambs, they're growing, so they're going to need extra protein, which is usually alfalfa or clover, some kind of legume. And if you're going to get alfalfa, it's really best to try and source organic because if not, it's probably a, a, a GMO product and sprayed with all kinds of nasty stuff you don't want to be eating. So uh, try to source organic if you can. Um, and the ratio for the protein to the grass hay forage is about 20 percent of the of the forage should be about should be the protein. So if you're feeding five pounds of grass hay a day, you probably need to have one pound of it. To, to be the um, legume of some kind. They're also going to need water, uh, which is obvious. Shelter. Now, shelters don't have to be a barn or anything fancy. Uh, really, it can be, you know, some shade under a tree, um, a three-sided building. I When I first started, I actually 
just took a cattle panel and arched it over and put a couple T-posts on either side of it, staked it down and put a tarp on it. And my sheep thought it was great. So uh, you can get super creative. You're only limited by your own creativity as far as um, shelters go. I've seen uh, a canoe on a couple um, like farm tractor tires propped up when they get under that. I've seen a, a trampoline be used, an old raggedy trampoline. So anything that's just going to give some shade from the summer sun or if there's a heavy rain event, just something that they can stay dry. Um, mineral supplementation is really important too. Like in my area in the inland Northwest, we have a selenium deficiency and that's this whole entire region. So if I didn't supplement with a little bit of selenium, then my meat would be a little bit grayish and kind of just not as good quality. So you might want to, if you're considering getting sheep, you might want to look up if there's a certain soil deficiency in your area and kind of supplement with that. A really good catch-all is kelp meal. Uh, and Redmond salt, because between the two of them, they pretty much have all the trace minerals you need. And also, I put diatomaceous earth. I would get food-grade diatomaceous earth, and that's going to um, also help with parasite control. See, now, what's yeah. great about that approach is by, by feeding that to your sheep, of course, they're running around eating all the stuff on your land as well, and then they're crapping everywhere. So you're remineralizing your soil through your sheep. Exactly. Um, that grass is now going to, when it grows back next year, it's going to uptake some of those nutrients that it was <laughs> deposited on it previously. So uh, the other things, last couple things real quick, uh, fencing, unless you're on like a thousand acres and you can just let them go, uh, which I don't recommend anyway, but uh, you're probably going to need fencing of some kind and they need friends. They're social flock animals, so having one is really not a good idea. They'll actually get depressed and just give up and die. So uh, I'd say a minimum two, but if you can do more, please do more. I, I felt four was probably the, the minimum that I was comfortable with, so that's why I, I selected four to start off with. And then they need a little bit of exercise, and this is where kind of your management practices come into play as far as, um, you know, do you just keep them in a pen or are you going to do rotational grazing, that kind of thing. I, I did a rotational grazing system with laneway, so I had water basically on one end of the field and their shelter on one end of the field, and then their forage was on the other end. So they would eat and then have to go all walk all the way back to get their water and then go back to eat again. So they're getting exercise that way. And I, I picked up a mentor along the way with um, farming and, and in particular with sheep. And she started doing this and she said she had dramatic health improvements with her animals when she started creating that uh, exercise program for them. It's real passive. It's real easy, but it's really important for them. So th those are the main things that you would need to do to get started as far as um, just what you need to get going. So let's talk a little bit about breeds because you mentioned you know, different yields and stuff. And I've always thought that in my climate, um, a goat would be better. But since I don't hate myself, I won't ever own a goat. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kind of the bridge between goats and sheep are like dorpers. They're hair, hair, hair sheep where they, you don't have to shear them. Uh, and they, they, they browse a little bit more like goats. So that's like the only breed of sheep that I know. And I know there's a lot more and I know there's a value to the wool and, and some people, and in your climate, I mean, they would be a, a great thing. So kind of what's available in the sheep world? Sure. And, and just to comment on the goat thing too, I, I feel the same way with goats. I mean, you're, it, they're going to give you a similar product, but a lot more headache. So I, I just don't understand why you wouldn't get sheep. But anyway. Um, yeah, sheep don't the, climb fences. They don't climb trees. I've seen goats right. climb a tree, bend it over, and then eat all the, the foliage off it. And sheep just don't do that. 
I don't think right. they can't, and I also don't think they're smart enough either. <laughs> right. They, they, and, and generally, you know, they browse less. They, they want, they do browse some like a goat, but they prefer, they, they graze and forage more than they browse, if that makes sense. But, um, getting back to your question about the breeds, um, essentially, yeah, they fall into two categories. There's wool and there's hair. Uh, the wool breeds, of course, produce a year-round. They they grow wool. They have wool year-round, and they give you that wool yield if that's something you're looking for. But uh, if you don't know how to shear, and it it is it does take some technique. It's not just something you're going to do one day and then go sell the wool. Uh, you're probably going to have to hire someone to come in and do the shearing, and that's a dying industry. So they're kind of hard to find, and you're going to have to really learn about marketing wool. It's a very niche industry and you really, really have to know wool because there's all these old ladies that have been, you know, spinning since they were little girls that know wool better than you ever will. So you've really, really got to be able to talk to their game and learn their language. And there's a learning curve to that for sure. Uh, so if you're just looking to put on some meat, uh, for, for the freezer, you may not have to concern yourself with all that. Wool, Wool sheep also produce um, lanolin, which is this oil. It's what makes their wool like it gives it all those beneficial properties we hear about when we hear the wonders of wool. Um, but it also gives sheep that f- extra flavor. I like the extra flavor. Some people will say Ooh, gamey, and I know how you feel about that phrase. I feel the same way. Um, gamey is not a flavor. Gamey exactly. is covering up the fact that you cooked it wrong. Exactly. <laughs> and it, you know, it's like. It, uh, if, um, you know, people are so used to eating beef and anything that just doesn't taste like beef, well, oh, it's got to be gamey. Well, no, it's, it's flavor. So, um, anyway, uh, if you are trying to raise sheep and you maybe want to sell some extra uh, meat, um, you may also want to look at the hair sheep for that because one, again, they're, they're not going to produce the lanolin to the same level as the wool sheep because they don't have the wool. They do grow it in the winter, but then they shed it in the spring. Um, but they don't have that lanolin production, so you get a milder taste, which is more palatable to the American market. And also, you know, if you just if you personally, if you just want to eat a milder meat, then then you have that option. But the real benefit is that you don't have to shear, you don't have to worry about any of that. So you have less um, input as far as that goes. You're not ha- going to have to hire that out. Um, so those are really the two different categories of sheep breeds but from there like it kind of breaks down like if you're looking at wool breeds that are going to give you a good meat production there's romney and targhees which are they give you really beautiful fleeces and they have pretty decent meat carcasses and the real popular ones are suffolk and hampshire's at least around here um they're huge those are those are um you know, quasi, uh, what do you call it? Um, commercial scale meat production. And, but they're going to be a lot less hardy. Uh, they just do not have the resilience of some of the other sheep. It's kind of like, you know, if you're trying to raise, uh, American guinea hog, um, versus, um, what's the big pink pig that they raise in the factories? Um, I call them pink pigs. <laughs> yeah, it's escaping me right now. But like, if you take that the big pink you know, CAFO pig and, and try to pasture raise it, or better example, the Cornish cross, right? Um, <laughs> same thing. You know, the, you take them out of the factory, they don't do as well in the pasture model as like your heritage hardier breeds. So um, uh, the, another option is your fin sheep. They produce good wool. Um, they're small and less hardy, but they 
make up for it with quantity. They can, they have like four, sometimes five lambs at a time. So you get more quantity that way. But for me, I, I went the hair sheep route, um, mainly again, because the uh, shearing, I just did not want to mess with that. And meat was my primary concern. So I wasn't trying for a wool market. Um, so I looked at the Katahdin and the Dorper is another really good option, but the Katahdin um, is very disease and parasite resistant. They're great mothers. They produce good milk. They can lamb out in the pasture. Like a lot of, you know, if you're raising Suffolk and Hampshire's, the, the less hardy breeds, you're going to have to set aside lambing season, put them in jugs in the barn, and you're like up all night lambing and all this stuff. And it's a huge stressful event with the Katahdin's. There's a lot less of that. You can actually let them just lamb like how nature intended out in the pasture. Um, they're very hardy, they're docile, and they're not too big. Like the Hampshire's, the Suffolk's, they're huge. The Katahdin's stay smaller, so they're more appropriate for homestead scale. Gotcha. That's very cool. That's a lot of things I didn't know, so it's always good to learn something new every day. Um What are some things to look for when you're, you know, you've, you've got a breed you want to go after, but now you got to find a breeder to, you, to, to buy your sheep from. Most of us don't have a, a sheep tree that we can go pick a few off of, right? So we got to get that initial stock. What, what are you looking for in a breeder? Sure. I guess the, the biggest, most important thing I can say about that is never buy from an auction or the sale yard. Um, that's just a really bad idea because you do not know what you're getting. You don't know how that animal is treated. You don't know the diseases it has, where it came from. And there's a reason so, it's there. <laughs> exactly. They're looking, the, the seller is looking to get rid of it for some reason because they couldn't find a, a direct market for it. So, um, yeah, so please try to avoid that. Buy directly from a breeder and that enables you to visit their farm. So the things to look for is you need to find a breeder that of course has the breed that you're looking for, but also there you need to find someone that is raising them using the management practices that you plan to have with them. Uh, example, rotational grazing. If that's something you want to do, then you should probably find a breeder who is already practicing that. So the sheep are coming already from that environment. Um, That's probably the biggest thing um, is management practices, finding someone who has that in line with yours. Also, you, when you go there, you want to observe the animals very carefully. Do they look happy? Are they well fed? Do they have those things that we talked about that we, earlier? Do they, as far as minerals, do they have access to that? Do they have shade? Do they have shelter? Uh, are they on pasture or, or are they in static pens? That sort of thing. So some questions you may want to ask too is how do you manage Parasites. Now, if you're if you want sheep because uh, you want to eat lamb in the fall, then you probably want to find sheep that aren't being pumped full of pharmaceuticals. The common practice is just like with a lot of other animals for deworming um, horses, uh, goats, and everything is. Uh, I think I, I think it's pronounced ivermectin, something like that, and it's a drench and it's it's just a dewormer, and you know it's a pharmaceutical. Do you do you want that in your meat? Um, I don't. So I'm looking for somebody who's also going to be using natural deworming practices, using diatomaceous earth. Uh, rotational grazing is actually one of the, you know, the practices to use to keep your parasite control down. And uh, also, are, are they using there's, – there's different ways. I've seen apple cider vinegar and molasses used. I've seen garlic and molasses. That's how I personally deworm. Um, are they using alternative methods like that, or are they going pharmaceutical routes? That's, of course, you know – It depends on what you want out of your animal. So ask about management for parasites and 
ask about foot rot. Here's kind of the thing. Like if a, if a farm ever has foot rot, it's one of those things that just lives in the soil forever. You probably, even if they, oh yeah, we had foot rot 10 years ago, but it's under control now. Don't buy from there. Um, if they ever had foot rot, that means they, they, there's just that risk that you're going to bring it on your place. You just want to avoid that. And, uh, you want to have somebody that is going to provide ongoing technical support. You don't want it to be like, well, here's your sheep. Goodbye. You want someone that's willing to take some additional phone calls, follow ups. Uh, if you run into problems so that you can, Oh, you know, like for instance, when I first got my sheep the next day, they got scours, which is basically diarrhea. And I'm like, Oh gosh, what do I do now? And, and I, so I was able to call my breeder and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. And, and it, it turns out that's just a normal thing because of the stress of moving and being on a new environment with new forage. And it worked itself out in a day. But having that having someone to call and just, hey, you know, this I'm seeing this. Is this OK? Just having that is really important from your breeder. So you want an, her answer or his answer to be absolutely call me anytime you need help. Um, and also. Talk to them about transportation. If you don't have a uh, livestock carrier of some kind, you may want to find someone that's willing to transport them for you, even if it means you have to pay extra. And uh, do some condition scoring, too, while you're there. Like, feel the sheep. Are they bony? Sometimes you can't tell, especially at the wool. Um, you, you want to just kind of feel them. Check their eyes. Do they have snot coming out of their nose? Are they coughing? Do they just look good or not? You know, that's what it kind of comes down to. Very cool, man. So, um... What what do you would you say to someone that wants to get started with sheep if they were to say to you like should they buy feeder lambs or or start out with breeding stock like like where where's kind of the place to start in, in in that you know because I think most people would want to breed long term but I guess there's a case too if you wanted to just raise meat you can get some 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 young lambs and and grow them out to to slaughter weight or what have you right um, my take on it is I got from my mentor um, who is you know, been just absolutely critical for me getting to this point with homesteading. Um, and her admonishment to me was, do not, do not, do not get breeding stock your first year. Um, there's additional concerns you're going to have to deal with getting breeding stock right off the bat. Uh, are you, you're going to be lambing in the spring probably. Um, do you want to be dealing with that your first year? It's a stressful kind of event. I mean, it can be a wonderful, joyous occasion. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of stress for the beginning shepherd at that point. Um, plus, you're going to have to think about overwintering um, conditions as far as feed, storing enough hay, um, shelters for the heavy. You know, we're in a northern climate here, so we have to deal with snow and stuff. But uh, there's a, it, keeping their water from freezing. There's just all these additional concerns for overwintering. Um, so she, her recommendation is just to get, start off with, um, a few that you're going to raise for me and harvest your, the, at the end of your first year. So you get that experience, um, raising them, see if you like them. Of course, you know, if you're just getting into sheep, you may not exactly know which breed you want. So if you think, you know, I, I kind of like the idea of katahdins, let's see how that goes. You can get katahdins, see how they work for you in your management program before making the long-term commitment with getting breeding stock. Um, so first year, um, I, this is what I did. I just I bought the four and I, I got rams, so there are no ewes or anything. There's no breeding, anything like that. And they were, we decided, you know, we're going to harvest, we're going to have them slaughtered and processed for me uh, in November. And 
So that was the plan. And it, if we like everything at the end of it, then we'll get breeding stock next year. And that's kind of where we are now. We just finished our first um, year raising them. Uh, everything went really well. And again, I said earlier, we're getting our meat today. So that's going to be exciting. And, uh, so basically that's just my advice. Like I, I think it's really best to, you know, kind of dip your feet in the water a little bit before jumping in. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense because like you said, you can start getting your management practices down at all. You've got an animal that's, that's old enough that it's not just going to die on you. Uh, exactly. you're going to get a yield, you know, in a reasonable grow out period of time. You know, there's an end in sight. So if like you decided, this seemed like a really good idea, but it's not. I don't mm-hmm. want these things here. Well then, okay, you, you can do anything for six, eight months, whatever it is on your grow out. You know, because like I've had the experience with these turkeys. I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get some royal palm turkeys, and I'm going to keep a trio out of them, and I'm going to let them breed every year, and I'm going to have free turkeys, and I'm not going to have to buy poults anymore. And uh, the first year I raised three turkeys. Well, raising three turkeys is not a big deal. I've got ten of them out there right now, and they shit on everything. Right. Assholes for the dogs, and they bite little kids and all, and I'm like, you know what? I don't mind it for five months out of the year to grow them out. But I'm not having them here full time. Uh, where you know, if if you you know, I guess you could always go ahead and slaughter or sell. But it, it gives you that kind of like training wheels approach. Like you, you're just doing a piece of the whole thing, and then you decide do you want more or not. So I never really thought about it that way. But it's a very good point. Yeah, it, it gives you that freedom to to um, you know that your first winner taking that off, it, kind of reflecting back and thinking, you know, what adjustments do I need to make in the future? It gives you the opportunity to maybe go to some conferences. I know, uh, you know, there's no PB4 this year or this coming year, but I was really hoping to, that there would be. But, you know, just that kind of thing, it frees up your winter your first year. So you can kind of, your first year homesteading, would, you know, and maybe it's not your first year homesteading, but for me it was getting the sheep. It, it, it's now allowing us to, you know, sit back, take a breath before we jump in and make the huge commitment with getting breeding stock in the spring. Yeah, definitely. There is something, I think most farmers feel that way, that, that, that you know, raise broilers or raise lambs or whatever it is, even if they have breeding stock, like, there's that point where everybody goes to the graduation ceremony and now you can like breathe. You know, you have these exactly. pause and it's you know, it's it's in a convenient time of year. It's usually right around this time of year or maybe a little closer to Thanksgiving, but so then you can kinda of coast through those holidays without all that extra stuff and all that extra baggage and trying to keep them all alive through the freezing cold winter and all that stuff. Exactly. And Joel Salatin talks about it a lot as far as like seasonality. Um, it being important, you know, because we, we have a season for, for growing and we have a season for rest. And I think, um, you know, when you're just getting into the the sheep, it's, it's good to maybe take that rest that first year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So what is your daily management like? Or I should say, what has it been like since uh, your, your four lambs have graduated into delicious chops? Yeah, um, it's it was surprisingly... A lot less than I thought. I mean, up front, doing all the, getting all the fencing set up and all that was, there was definitely some upfront, um, work where I put a lot of time into figuring, you know, just actually like sitting down and trying to figure out a rotational grazing, uh, system, like setting up all the fencing for that. I mean, it, that, that took a lot of mental bandwidth. But, um, as far as the daily management goes, once I got it all set up, it was really, really easy. Um, I, again, because I was starting with very poor pastures and um, there just wasn't much for them to eat at all, 
I was having to run a lot of hay out. So if that's not your case, it may be a lot even, it may be a lot less work than I'm even describing. But essentially my day would, was I would, when I would go out in the morning, I would, um, first I would give them their alfalfa. I would start their morning off with that. I, I had to get organic alfalfa pellets because I couldn't find anybody who was not spraying in my region. So I just had to bring in alfalfa pellets, which is a little bit more expensive. And it's definitely not something that really scales up. There's, it's just too cost prohibitive if you have, you know, like 20 of them. But, um, for my small scale, it's fine. But anyway, so I'd run out the alfalfa to them in the morning and then, and then I'd run some hay out. Now I was doing a little bit more intensive management because in my, each little paddock I set up for them, I had their hay feeder and I had this really small one that I could move real easily. And I'd run hay out in the morning they eat the hay and they make a mess. They spread the hay everywhere, but all that hay is going on the ground and they're stomping on it. They're pooping and peeing on it, all that. So that is going to decompose and really build organic matter into the soil. So I'm hoping, you know, in time, this is going to be, this is part of my revitalization strategy. So I'd, and then in the afternoon, I'd move the feeder a little bit more over and every time and in particularly every day, I, I'd make bigger moves and I kept moving the feeder all the time every time I'd bring out the feed. So it's really spreading that hay everywhere. Now, if again, if that's not your situation, you don't have to run it out all the time. I was doing basically, you know, running out breakfast, then as you know, snack, and then an afternoon and then dinner kind of thing. So I was running out four or five times a day with hay. Um, but you know, I'm full-time homesteading now. I'm stay at home dad with my son and I'm doing, you know, kind of a video production, stuff also. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I'm not being pulled away going to jobs all the time. Uh, so I had the time for it. Um, so I would say though, not counting the days where I was, um, doing the rotate, the paddock shifts where I was breaking down fencing and setting up the next paddock, my total time investment would probably be 15 to 20 minutes a day. Um, you know, every, every couple days I would refresh their water uh, which would take a little bit of time. And then again, breaking down the fence and setting up the next paddock, um, was generally a 30 minute process. So it was very minimal for, you know, for raising a livestock. It just seemed like, wow, this is not a tremendous amount of work. So I was really pleased with the, the amount of time investment. Very cool. So you've kind of chronicled all this and you've got a YouTube channel and you're going to be releasing in the future kind of a course for people that want to get started at this like homestead level with sheep, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, real quick about the YouTube channel, um, I was helping Justin Rhodes uh, with video editing for his course that he released, the 10-hour homestead that, that came out in August. And um, I was... Talking with him on the phone, we were ironing out some issues and in, in, uh, about the editing and all that. And um, I'd also been helping uh, Gary Collins, he, where he's building his um, off-grid cabin um, on his property is not terribly far from where we are. So I've been, I was going over to his place and doing some video production for him as well. And um, I. I just started talking to Justin about the YouTube stuff because he has a wildly successful YouTube channel. And I was trying to get some ideas to, um, you know, kind of help Gary's channel out some too. And I, so I asked Justin about it and we got to talking about, the, you know, the real nitty gritty details of YouTube and, and what he's doing and all that. And he, he stopped mid-sentence and, and started saying, you know, I don't know why more people aren't doing this. And Dan, in fact, why aren't you doing this? You should be doing YouTube. You're you're a video guy. You have no excuse. And 
<laughs> I kind of laughed. I said, well, you know, I've been kind of kicking around the, the tires, kicking around the idea on um, the idea of it. Um, I, you know, we're about to start home saying this was like, we, we moved onto our property in July and this was June. I was having this conversation with him and I said, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, just doing a couple videos when we get homestead and that kind of thing. He goes, Dan, I'll tell you this. If you do 30 videos in 30 days, if you, so one video a day for 30 days, I will, I will help you. I'll, I'll give you a, a shout out in my email and that kind of stuff. I'll help promote your channel. And I was like, wow, you know, this, that was never my goal or my intention or anything like that. But I was like, you know, this is an opportunity and you know, I should probably take it. I talked about it with my wife and I told her what this would mean, you know, like, you're going to have to be in videos and sometimes you may not feel like you're pretty enough to be in the video, but you're going to have to do it anyway. And she's like, Oh, cool. Let's do it. So I'm like, okay. Um, so Justin said, all right, it's on man. Uh, so I said, okay, moving day, moving well, the day we move on to the homestead is day one. And I started filming, um, day one moving day, which is not a very interesting video because it's just about moving. <laughs> but, uh, um, from there on every day where today is, let's see, today is day 122 or 23, something like that. I did not stop at 30 days. I just kept going because it, it actually became, um, just part of my day. Like, uh, for me to stop doing it now, the concept is kind of weird. So I've just filmed every day of our life here on the homestead, establishing things. It started with just nothing. So the day two, we're putting in the cattle panel fencing and stuff to set up a corral for the sheep. Day three, the sheep come and then it just doesn't stop from there. It just keeps going. So, um, it's not a how to, uh, there is a little bit of that in there, but it's more just what we're doing. I hate the phrase or I hate the word vlog, but that's kind of what it is. Um, the video log kind of thing. I, I, I just hate using that phrase, but anyway, um, so it's a tremendous uh, resource for people who are maybe just curious how we're doing homesteading and give, might give them some ideas. I've had people contact me all over the world, like telling me they are so interested in sheep now and, um, they've, you know, learned sustainable principles and permaculture and different things from my videos. And it's just, the, the social capital has been amazing. Like just the community building around it has just been outstanding, uh, which has been super encouraging for us. And, um, it, it, it's just been an amazing experience. I, I really enjoy it. And as far as the video course goes, um, this, this kind of spawned out of, uh, my, when I, when I got into this, there was so much I still didn't know that I didn't realize I didn't know until I started doing this. Uh, I thought I was so prepared because I, I I took the Perma Ethos PDC, I've taken Jeff Lawton's PDC, I've read you know countless books, I've gone to so many workshops on all this stuff, but you know when I started to go source some of the stuff I needed, like hay, it's like I don't know anything about hay, and I had to have like a two-hour crash course with my mentor on the phone about buying hay. There, I mean, it sounds easy, just go get some hay. Well, no, there's a little more to it than that, and. And then just all the ins and outs of fencing, it, it, it was a little abstract, like setting up the rotational grazing, the energizers and the batteries and, and then, you know, how to do all this stuff. So, um, so I, I just thought, you know, I just went through all this stuff. I just spent a lot of time figuring all this stuff out. I, and I feel that I could put together a, a pretty good informational package to where people could, um, basically get all the stuff as it's fresh from me because you know I talked to my mentor about this um 
about putting this together. I actually, I was trying to get her to make the video with me and she, she runs a, you know, full scale, uh, steer and hog operation. All that. She doesn't have time for it, but she said, no, you don't need to be teaching. You need to be learning. And I said, well, my response was, well, I'm learning by teaching, uh, number one, but two, like there are so many things that I didn't know from the workshops and all this and that, that this stuff is so fresh in my head that I just recently had to learn that I'm, I'm going to be able to plug in these gaps that the workshops and all these other books aren't covering. Cause I just went through it. You know, if I waited five years, I may not remember all these little things. So I wanted to put something together now while it's still like really fresh in my head and, and think about all the things that I had to learn um, after I got into this. Well, it's very cool, man. And uh, we had talked it. Um, people can go by your website uh, and you give that out and I'll have it in the show notes in just a second, but, um, and like sign up for your email list or whatever so they can get notice about it. But when it is available, we'll be doing a, a discount for members of the support brigade, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you go to my website, which is the grassfedhomestead.com, there's a little tab at, at the top. And, and again, like you said, you'll just, I guess, put a link in the show notes. But um, there's a tab at the top for raising lamb for meat instructional video series. And you can click on it and sign up for the mailing list on it. So I can kind of I'll know if you're interested or not to send you more information. And um, right now it's about 75% filmed. I've done all the production myself. I've all the video production and everything, but it's not just me. I've also been going out to other shepherds with a lot more experience and talking about different breeds. And so it's not just Katahdin's on my for uh, on, on my, uh, small acreage. It's looking at other operations as well. So, um, but anyway, so all that's about 75% done and, um, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to have it done by the end of the year. There's going to be a lot of editing on the back end uh, that I'm going to work on. But my cost for production is not going to be very high. So I'm really hoping to offer this at a very reasonable rate, especially for the frugal homesteading community. And, you know, I know it's hard to part with the dollar sometimes. but So I'm going to try to you know, keep it very affordable for everyone. And I, of course, want to extend that to the uh, MSB audience. Very cool. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being with us today. Again, folks, the website is grassfedhomestead.com. Uh, YouTube channel will also be linked to in the show notes today. And, uh, man, I really appreciate you being with us today, Dan. Thanks so much, Jack. It was a blast. With that, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dan. He's a really great guy. I want to remind you, if you like this show and you want to support the work I do, the easiest way to do that is become a member of the TSP MSB. That's the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. To become a member, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. You'll see the almost 70 companies now that provide discounts to you that will make your membership more than pay for yourself if you use just a few of them every year. And uh, you'll see all the other great benefits you get, and there'll be a place you can sign up there. Remember, if you want to sign up online, I take PayPal. But if you don't want to use PayPal, you can sign up by uh, sending in a form, and you can pay with cash, you can pay with money order, you can pay with silver. You can even pay with Bitcoin. I take all of those forms of payment for the TSP MSB, and it is members of that brigade that from the very beginning have made this show what it is and given me the ability to do this show five days a week on average. You know, I'd probably say 49 weeks out of the year. It's something like that that we actually put out a show five days a week, and it's because of the support of members of the MSB. So thank you to all of you who are currently members, who have been members in the past. And if you're a, a past member, please consider rejoining today. The benefits are better than they ever were at any time in history. The other way you can support our show, and it is completely painless and it doesn't cost you any money because it would be money you're going to spend anyway, 
is to do your shopping at tspaz.com. And that's www.tspaz.com, tspaz.com. Uh, when you go there, you just click a link, you head on over to Amazon and uh, do your shopping, and we get credit for your sales. I don't have an Amazon order of the day, item of the day for you today. I'm running short out of time as I'm trying to, uh, to get the three rewind episodes up and, uh, and get out of town so I can go out there and get some, uh, some Bambi to make some Bambi jerky out of, or Bambi biltong actually. So, uh, no Amazon item of the day today, but there's a ton of them there if you want to look through them. If you go to tspaz.com, there's another link. You can pull up all the items that I've reviewed. And I'm beginning to start cataloging those. Remember, there are tags at the end of any of those uh, items, and you can click on those tags to see other items within that category. So I'm trying to put together a comprehensive list of the best stuff that I use in my life on Amazon for you. That's where the item of the day came from. I don't know if it's something we'll do forever. We'll probably do it for a couple of years and build up a really great catalog of stuff. Anyway, uh, with that, the uh, only thing left for us today is the song of the day. Well, we just had a major... Uh, Revolution, I guess you would say, it, it, with Trump winning. And a lot of you have asked for my comments about Trump being the new president. Some of you are happy. Some of you are very, very concerned, etc. I'm sorry, that's a deep subject. Uh, I won't put it as an amendment to the end of the show. You'll have to wait till next week when I come back, my first you know, live show next week. I will talk about it in, in, in great detail. But I, uh, I chose this song for you guys today. It's called Revolution. By the Beatles. This is actually John Lennon singing, which he did sing the, the original track as well. Uh, I found this on YouTube. This is an acoustic version, and it sounds to me like it's all the Beatles, not just John. Like the, the other guys are there and back up or whatever, but uh, in the video it just says John Lennon. So I thought the acoustic version would be kind of cool. Because, uh, man, this is a time when musicians were ex extremely talented. Um, there were some amazing, you know, revolutions in, in music. And the Beatles, of course, were one of the, 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 the hard chargers in that revolution. But I, I chose this song. And, and of course, they're, they're calling for peaceful revolution in this and, and, you know, put away your posters of Chairman Mao and things like that. But the reason I chose this one is for, you know, it's going to be all right. You know, I think a lot of folks need to hear that right now. It's going to be all right. It really is. It's going to be all right. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. Don't you know that you can count me
people, people with minds that hate. Well, all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. But you know it's going to be all right. But you know it's going to be